directly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Thought for the day, drink deep of victory, and remember the fallen. Hello Archangels and welcome to episode 53 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast about role-playing in the 41st millennia using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Fight Games. Each episode we cover a different game system. Uh, before we get into tonight's episode though, let's quickly talk about uh, Fortnite in gaming. You haven't actually gained in this last Fortnite, Mike. You've been pretty much chained to the office chair. That's it, yeah. I mean, I, I've done two things. So I did my, my Scion game. Uh, which ran a couple of weeks ago. That was sort of the second part of my cross between courtroom drama and Journey to the West yep. game, which it's went, went pretty well. Uh, but then also this Tuesday was our regular midweek group of Star Wars, which you couldn't make along. I asked if you were free and you weren't, and I thought, sort of thought, oh well, Mike's been to every other game. I'll you know I'll let yeah. the others play on a night that Mike can't make it. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of you know go off topic straight away here yeah. <laughs> oh what bit, a shock that's yeah, right talk a little bit about, about other gaming about that, the Star Wars yep. yeah that's it I mean the, other other podcasts have segments like when could games go bad or that sort of stuff you know and there's been some interesting developments in our in our campaign you know, that I suppose you know you could take information from for other games and such but basically one of the players let's call him say Brian okay because yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. his name <laughs> uh, he doesn't listen to the podcast it's alright uh, he sort of had some concerns after the last game that he played. He sort of sent me this message saying, I'm a bit worried about where I'm going with my character. I made him as a traitor, but now he's just really sort of, you know, violent character. And I think he actually SMSed you and one of the players saying, you know, what do you think of my character? And what was your response? Well, well, he, he sent a message saying, is, is my character a dick or is he just, you know, a little bit scarred by his, hand, by his handling by the Imperium? And I, and I replied, he's a monumental dick. <laughs> Did you use evil? I think was the word evil among them. Or? No, 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 no. Just, just he's a monumental dick. At one stage, he decided that the best weapon to get would be a flamethrower, and that you know when you when you're facing off against a group of unarmed imperial technicians, threatening to flamethrower them all is a, is a good start. Yeah, I mean, I did say to Brian, I think that was probably his first mistake. Was as a Rodian trader saying, "I'm going to buy a flame projector." Um, now, at first, I thought the flame projector was like the sort of wrist-mounted thing that you see in the in the movies, but it's not. It's an encumbrance six. It's like a backpack and yeah, it's you know, a full-sized flamethrower. <laughs> that's it. And, and you know, when you've got a flamethrower, you feel the urge to set, set things on fire, which is perfectly fine in the forty k universe. Yeah, it's it's expected pretty much. You know, it's the flamethrower is. You know, everyone in their house has one. You know, but... yeah. Well, well, that's it. The flamethrower is an excellent object item or tool to use. It's not a great weapon to use in most games because, let's face it, it's a pretty evil weapon. That's it. And pretty much because of the encumbrance value, his character can pretty much wear clothes and carry a flamethrower. That's pretty much, you know. So I said to him, you know, you're going to become known as the Rodian with a flamethrower, you know, if you keep going that way. And he he made some slight changes to his character, um, which he wants me, me not to tell you about, by the way. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, so what I could do is I suppose I could mention it later on in the show like I, I can edit it in later on, and if you want to hear it, you've got to have to listen to our whole show, which I know you won't do because you hate hearing your own voice. Yeah. Uh, but 
needless to say, he still kept the flamethrower. Of course. Uh, which meant, when we played on Tuesday, I, I really sort of gave him a hard time. I want to say a hard time. I, I didn't make it unfun for him, you know. But every time he started to an NPC, he'd be like, you know, can you go to this? And the person's like, yeah, I can. Hold on a sec. Are you holding a flamethrower? What are you doing with a flamethrower? You're, you're on a space station, you know. Do you know how dangerous that is? And every NPC knows because it's that big. You can't, you know, and he said I carry it everywhere. He declared that, you know, it's not just like I get it out when we're going into combat, you know. I'm going ashore to buy goods. I'll take my flamethrower with me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now, I, I made sure... I know when I go down the shops to get some milk and bread, I take the flamethrower with me. That's it, yeah. So I made sure that every NPC commented on the flamethrower. You know, one of the NPCs even nicknamed him Scorch and commented it's lucky that Rodians don't have eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> so it is in a mind, but yeah. <laughs> just wanted to make sure that he knew that he was, you know, his character was going to be defined by what he carried around pretty quickly if, if NPCs kept seeing that. But, yeah, uh, it's going to be hard to hide, especially when... I think our mission was to do sneak onto a space station and do a heist. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to be doing a heist and keeping a low profile when one of your characters is uh, carrying around a flamethrower. Right. In fact, at one point, they were even told to keep a low profile. So, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Fantastic. All right, well, that was my Fortnite in gaming <laughs> in Rolf, like, anyway, so... Yeah. Uh, I, I, but, I, yeah, been, as been doing more computer gamers is normal, but, uh, yeah, it's about the role-playing here. Uh, okay, so tonight's show, uh, we are back around to Death Watch. So we'll do our news section, which will be very short tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about the mass battle system. Then we're doing a chapter discussion on the Blood Angels, a regular plot hooks and war gear section. We're doing a review of the Rising Tempest. Then we're going to talk about using the Inquisition in your Death Watch game. And we'll do our regular community section and close out the show. Okay. So, gaming stories aside, let's get straight into it, shall we? Yep. Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. So, on to the news. Uh, as I mentioned before, not a lot. First off, uh, on the FFG side, we've seen the announcement about the release of Enemies Without. Yep. Which I picked up from my FLGS literally today. Yep. And I got your copy too. Yep. You have been sitting down having a flick through it while I... Uh, uh, get ready for the podcast we're not doing a review until our next Dark Heritage episode but initial impressions it looks pretty good yeah yeah yeah, there's plenty in there Um, I'd like to read in depth a bit more on a few of the little bits but there's plenty of plot hook stuff there worlds um, home worlds um, new background options all that sort of stuff lots of nice art lots of nice art again um, some good yeah, I, mean, I was surprised to see background options that we didn't we didn't hear about in the earlier sort of previews because I mean I remember hearing about I think at least Death World and Garden World. Yeah. But you also had now Research Station. Yep. Um, I You've also got uh, Imperial Navy, uh, Heretech, and, and Rogue Trader, Trader. Um, as uh, as backgrounds, and you've then got also the role of Ace, which we knew about anyway. But uh, yeah. yeah, so quite a few character options there. We'll have to make sure when we do our next Dark Heresy show as well as doing a review, we incorporate some of those into the, the builds we do. Hopefully they fit with whatever is we're up to in Dark Heresy. Yeah. <laughs> You'll find out if you episode's time. Um, nothing else on the 40k line from FFG, though. Um, yeah, nothing else about, about uh, Conquest or... I think so. We're just, no, no, yeah. pretty, pretty quiet at the moment. Yeah. Um, even Games Workshop, no new big announcements. Lots of new tower releases. Um, uh, yeah, it's pretty clear now that um, Horus Heresy will be released with Games Workshop instead of just as a... As a Forge World side Forge thing. Forge World side thing, but um, not a lot of mention about what's in it or anything else. Um, some Tower stuff came out. Yeah, they seem to be having this progressive storyline of the Tower versus the Raven Guard. So yeah. Yeah, they've yeah. got a new book out. Uh, so yeah, lots more stuff for the Tower. 
Um, and on Eternal Crusade, uh, they had a big Halloween Twitch stream. Um, probably the main things I took out of that were uh, they've added melter bombs to the game. Yeah. So melter bombs seem to be the way to take out vehicles. Oh yeah. Two melter bombs would take out a vehicle apparently. Um, two melter bombs. Two melter bombs. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, well, you, I, I suppose it got any worse than the laser cannon. And you can only carry two. Um, <laughs> and, and only if you're a, um, a tactical marine as well. So. Uh, okay. Yeah, and uh, apparently, reading their Twitter stream, they had to actually. <laughs> they said they said you blew it up, you know, because they had to, after the after they released the, the beta patch with the melter bombs, they had to actually revert back to pre-melter bombs because of problems they're having with the servers. Oh. So I don't know if all the ordnance was causing big problems with their system. but uh, Everyone's strapping melt bombs to everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing I meant, they, they introduced was the Stormbolter. Yeah. Uh, so in the video they showed it wasn't skinned yet, so it was just the model. Uh, they had a bit of an odd take on the Stormbolter, I think. So they, they see a Stormbolter as opposed to a bolter, as like more like a submachine gun, as opposed to a carbine or an assault rifle. Okay. Um, so they sort of said, okay, it's got a high rate of fire, but really inaccurate. You know, only really good for short range. Um, and you know, at the end you, of the day, you see, see, that isn't to, to me. That isn't a storm bolter. A storm bolter is just a bolter which fires twice every time you pull the trigger. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. It's, yeah, it's, it's got it's, more recoil, but you're a space marine. You can handle it. That's it. Yeah, you can. You know, you can achieve the same thing with two bolters and a, and some a roll of duct tape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's uh, yeah. It, it, it's 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 the whole thing. It's like it's his emperor's holy duct tape. <laughs> that's it. The omnisized I mean, own. I can see from a game balance point of view, they want yeah. each weapon to have this is its utility value. You know, like if if a storm bolter was better in every way than a bolter, like you know, more ammunition, more damage, same accuracy, same range, then why would you ever take a regular bolter? You always take a storm bolter as such. Well, um, that raises the question in in most of the games when a character's got an option of taking a bolter or a storm bolter. The only reason you don't is if you're trimming on points or you're not going to use one. Yeah. I mean, okay, you're a tactical marine. Why would you take a storm bolt instead of a bolter? Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. It's okay to say from a game balance point of view, but make it something that you actually have to earn, and then, you know, if you've earned the points to be able to use it, use it. Yeah, I mean, it's the same. It's comparable to, say, a plasma gun or a melter gun or... Yeah. Any any other standard exactly. tactical marine weapon? Exactly. Stuff. You can't make a bolter gun as versatile and as useful as a plasma gun. A yeah. plasma gun is better. End of story. Yeah. I mean, the only problem with it is it overheats. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So, um, yeah. anyway, so that's what they brought in there. Um, okay. They had oh, the other thing they showed was just that they've got some. That they've improved the way that the damage shows on the enemy because previously it sounds like the way the AI used to work would be when you shoot an enemy, it would draw a line from the closest point or from the gun of your model to the closest part of their model. So if they were like running towards you, they might be aiming at their face and shooting them in the leg or the arm and such because it's a leading edge. Yeah. Um, they, they've changed it so that the shots appear to hit the area of the body that you're actually aiming at and that the models actually have like a sort of a a recall from being hit as well. They sort of display like a little sort of, you know... Little blood splatter. Well, it doesn't just happen, like a physical movement as such, you know, like okay. if they're hitting the shoulder, they sort of, you know, their shoulder recoils slightly, all that sort of stuff, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, there was, I think at one point, um, I think it's Kate Fleming who sort of said, oh, shoot me in the head, and then, yeah, like a couple of shots in the head, just, you know, smack, smack, bit of blood. Okay, we're all good now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't mind seeing them, you know... Redo the scene with Murphy out of the start of Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> but I just don't see the, the engine supporting that. Yeah, sort what of was thing. it? Uh, Soldier of Fortune. That was that was the first first person shooter that had 
the different damage locations yeah, you can actually uh, like shoot limbs off or that sort of stuff or, yeah. yeah I remember that God, that's, that's going back a while uh, well, we digress okay. <laughs> that's, it, that's it for the news so let's, uh, let's get in straight into the, the main discussion okay knowledge is power hide it well okay let's talk about system now for Death Watch and we've pretty much covered off all the major systems so I'm sort of pulling out little systems here from different books uh, and this one sort of comes from uh, I, I thought of this one after reading the uh, adventure for the last uh, for the last show, but, um, Frozen Reaches. Yep. Uh, because there is actually, along with the Horde system in Death Watch, Mark of the Xenos actually introduced a mass battle system. So the idea here is not so much the players versus a huge army, it's the players and their huge army versus a huge army. Uh, and it's got some sort of methods that we talked about in an earlier show many times ago that are sort of house rules for running mass combat as well. Yeah. Uh, it's all built around the concept that, especially in Death Watch, you can have players be part of a huge battle, but you want the players to be the heroes of the battle. You want oh, them yeah. to be the, the, the sort of... Yeah, but, that's easy with Death Watch. It is, to, to be honest. I mean, you could have an army of Imperial Guard and they fight against the bulk of the enemy while the group of five Space Marines hold the entire right flank. Yeah. And well, that's okay. within and, the and realms of possibility. that's one method. We'll talk about the methods yeah. in a second as well. But um, I will point out, this will probably be a relatively short... Um, rules section because the, the rules here are, are, are designed to be a bit more abstract uh, but we'll talk about anyway and we'll, and we'll see what we think Yeah. so uh, the idea with mass battles is there are basically three methodologies presented in the book and the first one is called simply the abstract method and this is I guess more like what you spoke about and that is that or it's, it, even to, to a greater extent this is pretty much the GM decides what should happen based upon all factors you know, so if the players have gone to the work of raising a huge army, which far outnumbers the the uh, the other side, we don't need to worry about doing all sorts of dice rolls and that. You know, we can simply you know narrate the scene where the player's army you know sweeps over the fields and and lays waste to the enemy forces and such. You know, it's uh, you can have it so that the players say what they want to do, what their actions are in combat, and you then adjust your narrative in order to fit with the players' actions. Because once again, you want the players to be the focal point of the game. Uh, but at the end of the day, it really is just a, a game of arbitration. You know, the, the, yep. the GM decides you know, the, what storyline fits with what the players have described. Right. There is the concept that you may sometimes roll dice when things happen randomly. You know, so uh, roll willpower to see if an Imperial Guard unit breaks when they're assaulted as such. You know, just little things like that. You know, but you're not really rolling to hits or damage, or it's just a narrative concept. Uh, and I guess that's. What you can do, I suppose, is break off the, the... To go back to your point, is you break off what the player characters are doing, specifically, into regular combat rounds, and you just narrate what's happening in the background. You know, the Imperial Guard are holding off the Chaos Forces while you, you know, go to fight the, the Warlord from the other side as such. Yeah. That's method one. Uh, method two, which is probably where the, the bulk of these rules are, is called the Detail Method. Right? So this is actually where there is a, a fresh system for the game uh, now all non-player entities within the game so this includes vehicles hordes you know warlords you know master creatures and such whatever it might be in the battle on either side is rendered as two characteristics an attack value and a defense value so and these are both calculated so the attack value of any figure is equal to so it gets it gets one attack value for every dice of damage that it does Okay, so whether it's 1d10 plus 1 or 1d10 plus 30, it's still 
One, one. one value, sorry. One attack value, sorry. This is important for hordes, though, because remember, as the horde magnitude goes up, you can have up to additional 2d10, you know, so magnitude 40 horde's going to have 2d10 extra on top of its base damage, so it's going to have... Minimum. A, a minimum of three straight three away. attack value, yeah. That's it. Uh, you add one attack value for every attack that the uh, figure has beyond the first. Uh, and in this case, you include dual weapon wielders or linked weapon users as well. So if you had like the Storm Bolter, for example, that is an extra attack. Um, you know, we had a you know, assault marine with uh, swift attack or lightning. Yeah, you know, or, or even just a chainsword and a bolt pistol. Yeah, you know, it's two weapons as such. That counts as well. And once again, hordes get additional attacks based on the magnitude, so you factor that in as well. Uh, now you add one atta- um, attack value if they are wielding a semi-auto weapon, mm-hmm. and you add two attack value if they're wielding a fully automatic weapon. This is, I guess, the one thing that probably wasn't clarified in the book was. So if I've got a weapon that's got, say, a value of um, S210, for example, like an auto gun, um, is that plus one for the semi-value, plus two for the full, or is it just plus I'd two because it's got a full? I'd say you just go for the plus two. That's, what, that's what I'd be doing, yeah. 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 The, the example they give in the book uh, is a Imperial Guard which has a LAS gun, which only has a semi-automatic fire value, so they get a plus one for that. But yeah, certainly I would be using the higher of the two. Yeah, having, having a heavy bolt which only has four auto is not going to give you less dice than having... You know, a, a bolter, which or not a bolter, or so an auto gun, which is an auto gun. Yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, and that gives you your, your attack value. So you know, using the example I had in the book, you had a forty magnitude um, imperial guard unit. So it's going to have the base three d three d ten damage. So it's going to have three attack value. It's going to have um, two additional attacks. So it's going to have a total of uh, sorry, it's going to have three attacks in total. So two above and beyond the first one. So that gives you another plus two. And they've got some weapons because they're using las guns. So attack value of six. Okay. Uh, okay, then you've got the defense value. This one's a bit easy to calculate. You start with the tens of the wounds that the vehicle or creature has, or the magnitude if it's a horde. Okay. So, you know, that same Imperial Guard unit, magnitude 40, starts with four defense value. Um, you know, uh, if you had, a say, a, a Marine Sergeant or something that's got 20 something wounds, they start with a two. Uh, if they have something that's got less than 10 wounds or less than 10 magnitude, starting value is zero. Simple as that. Uh, and then you add one DV for every four full points of armor, not part thereof. So if it's got nine armor, it's got two DV for that. Is that on all locations or on just oh, one location? The most, the most armored location, I believe it is. Yeah. So so a bunch of orcs wearing just a tin hat with four <laughs> armor just on the head yeah. get plus one. Yeah, well, they probably they probably charge with their head down oh, okay, you know, yeah, towards the enemy. Yeah, yeah, so. well. <laughs> uh, and uh, they, if... By some miracle, this group or individual has a force field. It adds one defense value per ten rating of the force field. Wow! Yeah, so, so that means the conversion field's plus five straight. That's up. right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty big. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you've now got all units with an attack value and a defense value. The only thing you don't do this for is the player characters. Player yeah. characters retain all their regular stats. So when we actually get into the combat, we determine initiative as normal. So each each group goes in the initial order. And when a group goes, it simply rolls a d10 yep. and adds its attack value against the, the group that's attacking. Okay. You then subtract the defense value of that group. Anything left over is just damage straight to wounds or magnitude. Okay. It's pretty simple. You know, yeah, that's pretty straightforward, yep. yep. Um, if the PCs are attacking, they roll combat normally. If an opponent is attacking the PCs, they roll combat normally. So the attack value, defense value is just... Sorry? Uh, Yep. Quick question. Yes. Do, does anything special happen if you roll a 10? 
On that D10? On that D10? No, it doesn't, no. Okay, right. No, no. It's just, it's just a, a game of attrition, basically. So it is possible to have a unit go up against something and just not, not be able not to... Not be able to damage it, that's right. Yeah, now, that, that would be, as you said, so you take, your, say, uh, um, I guess a Dreadnought with, you know, an, uh, you know four, like, say, 40 wounds, a base value of 4. It's probably going to have plus 3 for its armor, so, you know, you'd up to 7. And you give it a conversion field, okay, it's up to 12. You know, and you've got your six your Imperial Guard with, say, six. Oh, I, I was thinking, yeah. like, a, a unit of Imperial Guard against something like a Bane Blade with a power field, which is going to be astronomically yeah. out of their range. Right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And which, I guess, fits. Realistically, right, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Unless they've got two Melter Bombs. Unless you've got two Melter Bombs. <laughs> That's true. But that does raise the question of what happens if this unit is armed with crap grenades. Yeah, with, with ordnance, I guess. That's the thing. Yeah, well, right, yeah. the question is, do you use the damage value of their LAS guns, or do you use the damage ah, value of their... If they've got model weapons, you use a weapon with the highest value. Now, that, that, that raises the question of, you know, if they've got crap grenades, they've, all got, they've got one each. So they get to use that every single Well, I, I suppose it depends. If there's a gr- horde of 40 guys, that's 40 crack grenades. That's well, I mean, remember, the hordes, the hordes aren't an exact number as well. Yeah. I mean, that's it. So. Yeah, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it does say use the weapon value, of the, the damage value of the highest damage of weapons. Okay, well. yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's basically your system for the detail method. Yeah, so it's detailed, but it is still a little bit abstract. That's it, yeah. yeah. Which leads us to the very detailed method. Okay, okay. right. Very detailed method, run combat as normal. You know, all the, all the full rules, everything gets initiative, everything makes attacks. Wow, that'd yeah. take forever. Yeah, it would, you know, if you've got... Okay, so we've got, like, six hordes and four soldiers on this side, like, four, you know, like, four big troops and such, plus a vehicle. On this side, we've got, you know, three hordes plus the pair of characters plus two veterans and such. You know, it's going to take forever. But, you know, sometimes... I mean, I, look, I've been to role-playing games in the past where we've played for six hours, and it's been one combat. Yeah. You, know, you, you said it, You said it. Uh, I think, last episode, is that, you know, role-playing is where... A five-hour walk can take five minutes, and a five-minute combat can take five hours. Yeah. So yeah. if you want to do that, you know, if you want to, maybe you should just be playing one with 40k. Just saying, you know. But the <laughs> there are ways you can get around that though to make it quicker. You can use dice rolling programs. You can pre-roll stuff beforehand if you know you're going to be running a, a you know a mission. Yeah. And you're going to have lots of heavy dice rolling stuff. Pre-do a lot of it before the game even starts. That way you can just pull out the numbers. Yeah, as it goes, that would make it a lot faster for you. All right. Now, the one last thing you have in the rules here, and it's not so much a rule, it's more of a suggestion, is that you incorporate what they call turning points. Yeah. Um, and these are events that happen during the battle that you will then play out with the PCs as a smaller part of the battle. You know, we break it down from strategic time into regular combat rounds as such, and we're now looking at specifically this part as the battle rages around them as such. Or it might be, you know, we need you to claim that beachhead we need you to capture their flag or kill that enemy commander or yeah. you know, cut, off, cut off their line of, um, of retreat as such all those sorts of things could be turning points and, and they are designed once again to make sure you're not just basically playing a war game that you are you know, highlighting the player characters as the heroes of this particular mass oh, battle they should be as well that's right yeah, yeah definitely I guess one thing I noticed in these rules are that they fit any game system any of these 40k it sounds games. very similar to the um Mass combat system from in Road, Road Trader, Trader. Yeah, which we'll be talking about in a future episode as well. Yep. Definitely. But uh, yeah, so we, we can sort of do the comparison then. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess Hordes is the one difference here. Yeah, yeah. But this sounds a, a bit more streamlined. More version. refined. More refined, yeah. That's it, yeah. So that's, that's really it. That's, that's, okay. all, that's, that's the system there. Um, I, I think that it, it uh, adds to the game. You can use it in you know, multiple of the missions and such. Look, just looking through the published modules already, there's plenty of room to use mass combat in those modules. Oh, so definitely, yeah. Yeah, you can certainly make the give the impression of a much larger 
Um, and, and just because you use one system in one game doesn't mean you have to keep using the same system throughout. If you want to do just an abstract abstract version for one game, then in a late game you go, no, actually we're going to do it as detailed. Feel free to match and switch and change around between the lot. That's it. There's plenty of room for customization. That's it. All right, then let's move on, shall we? Okay. All subsequent report to the administrator for career assignment. All right, Mike, here is a, a conversation I've been looking forward to. Yep. All about the Blood Angels. Yeah. Yes. I actually don't mind the Blood Angels. I was, was going to say, are there any actually no, Marine, no, no, Marine chapters you do like? They're, they're one of the ones I do like. Okay. Um, the only thing I don't like about them okay, okay, come on. is uh, the changing cannon. Okay, which... which well, originally they all used to suffer their black rage because their patri- um, patriarch died. Yeah. But later on, that was retconned that they all suffer the black rage because of a demonic curse put on them by a bloodthirster. Okay. That's a pretty huge change. We're going to talk about both, I think, here. Anyway, okay. Because I think that both are really... I think that both are part of the canon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right, yeah, so that's let, because they can't make up their minds. That's it. Well, let, let, so let's, let's, start, let's talk about the history of the Blood Angels first off. So all that history start off with the Primarch. And yep. of course, in, in the Blood Angels case, that's Sanguinius. Like all his brothers, he was scattered by the warp as a, as a baby to various places and he landed on a nuclear blasted planet named Baal Secundus yep um, now because he was sort of flung through the warp he was affected by the warp which caused him to grow angelic wings from his back yeah um, hence his you know white wings growing from the back of his armour as such uh, he as most of his brothers did rose to power within the world he, he basically united the uneff- the humans that were unaffected by the warp and then sort of nuclear waste and uh led them against the mutants and basically became the leader of the planet. Shortly thereafter, the Emperor turned up and Sanguinius is one of the few uh, Primarchs who didn't actually initially oppose the Emperor. He recognised him from who he was straight away, bent the knee, and he was pulled in to lead the, the Ninth Legion, basically, which became known as the Blood Angels. Yeah. Um, no real background I could find on where the name came from. No, no not really. That's it. No. I, mean, I guess the angelic wings were part of it, such, but uh, and the traditional blood rites of the planet, sort of thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so during the Great Crusade, uh, the Blood Angels basically distinguished themselves as shock troopers. Yeah, you know, they, they had a fantastic close combat doctrine uh, that led to them sort of developing a, I guess, a sort of competition or animosity with the um, the World Eaters, who had a very sort of similar doctrine. So that there's no love lost there. Um, but uh, at the start of the Horus Heresy, uh, Sanguinius, who was actually very good friends with Horus, that they were probably and, and you, you get this if you if you read the uh, the Horus Heresy novels, there was a lot of you know a, a very good relationship between Horus and Sanguinius during most of the Great Crusade. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so Horus sent Sanguinius uh, off to a world by the name of Cygnus Prime, where they were where the Blames were basically told to liberate uh, the human forces of the world from a Xenos invasion. That's not what they found when they got there. Uh, they dropped out of warp, and as they sort of came out of the warp, there was some. They were assailed by psychic energies. All their navigators and, and astropaths were, were, were slain outright. You know, many of the crew were also affected. The marines, thanks to their enhanced physiology, not so much. Um, but in that sort of assault, an image of a demon, uh, a, a, a demon prince of Slanesh, by the name of uh, what is name here? Uh, Kyrus the Perverse appeared on the bridge and basically challenged Sanguinius to you know try and take this world from him. And they found that, sure enough, this world was covered pole to pole in demons, basically. Yeah, it was a demon world, but they didn't know what demons were. So that's as it, far yeah. as they were concerned, they were, ze- were really creepy <laughs> demons. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. 
Uh, so seen Gwinius, sure enough, he led a ground campaign against the against the demons, quite successfully so for the majority of the campaign. He managed to track his way to what he believed was the lair of Kairos, which was an ancient cathedral. Um, but it was there that his group actually encountered a greater demon and bloodthirster of corn by the name of Carbantar, uh, um, who basically tried to lure Sanguinius to Corn's side by telling him that they could, you know, conquer Cygnus Prime and rule the sector of space. His father and son. Yeah. <laughs> Tried to warn him about Horus's um, betrayal. Deed, betrayal, but but Sanguinius didn't believe him, basically. Uh, and so they fought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sanguinius managed to sort of land a telling blow on the demon, stabbing it through the through the gutter abdomen, I think it is, anyway. But the um, the demon then, in its rage, enwrapped Sanguinius's legs with his whip, crushing, but basically pulverizing the bones in his leg, and fell into the ground with a blow from the flat of his axe. I don't know why a corn demon used the fight of his axe. I don't know why a corn demon tried to seduce someone onto <laughs> its side, but there you go. That's it. Uh, uh, and at the same time, the demon let out a mighty scream, which slew 500 battle brothers in an instant. And the sort of the psychic effect of that, of all those brothers being killed, knocks Sanguinius unconscious. And this is the point where the curse comes in, because the demon basically claimed then that although Sanguinius's legs will heal... The, the wound of this blow will fester within him as such. And so um, there's some that say that is where the black um, thirst... Or like, sorry, the, the, the black rage. Black rage originated was when the demon struck Sanguinius, basically. Uh, so the uh, Sanguinius' sons then basically rallied and fought the demons, eventually driving them back into the warp, but without actually slaying uh, either Kairos or um, Karbagda. Um, I have to say, the claims that Kai Bagata was a bloodthirster yeah. doesn't really ring true to me. Sounds a lot more like a demon prince of corn, just because well, they call him a, a greater demon and bloodthirster. So it's, it's, like, it's like, like, like almost like an elevated bloodthirster. I'm guessing. Yeah, such. The, so, yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't gel really with canon as what a bloodthirster is like, or does, or can do. Yeah. You know, I'd love to have a model in my army which can kill 500 battle brothers <laughs> with, with a single single attack. <laughs> you know, it seems a bit unlikely. After after filling a Primarch, yeah, and, and striking off a mortal wound, that's it. Yeah, uh, but that's because they break and they and they run off the edge of the board. Apparently, <laughs> according to this, it's, it's all well and good to stay half your enemy's army, but, you but just, if you've only got a leadership of seven, yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, Sanguinius awoke. Um, he vowed vengeance on Carbantar for. The loss of his sons, uh, which sort of, you know, has created the animosity that the Blood Angels feel towards demons, which, you know, all Marines should feel towards demons, but, you know, certainly they were really one of the first to really encounter them in this capacity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, before he could do much else, message arrived from Rogue Dawn that, you know, there was a problem on Terra, and that, you know, uh, he was recalled back there to aid his brothers, and so they basically quit the field, they removed all Imperial forces from the planets and basically sanctioned them off, effectively. Um... So, they went back to Terra, uh, they, they, they reached Terra in time to, you know, sort of see Horus' assault, and Sanguinius stood alongside the Emperor, actually joining him on the, uh, uh, for the boarding of uh, the Ventral Spirit, which was Horus' flagship. Uh, during the boarding, however, Sanguinius was separated from the Emperor, and he actually came upon Horus first. Uh, Horus, sort of seeing, it up, seeing you know, his, his ancient friend tried to, once again, lure Sanguinius to fight alongside him. You know, we can destroy our father and rule it as brother and brother. Rule the universe as brother and brother, I guess. But uh, uh, Sanguinius was having none of this. Uh, and Sanguinius actually foresaw that he would actually form in combat against Horus. 
but he knew that his death would give the emperor an opportunity, so he willingly sacrificed himself. And yeah, sure enough, although Horus slew Sanguinius in battle, that sort of exposed the weakness in Horus's armor that allowed the emperor to pretty much blast me to oblivion. You know. So depending on what you read, either the emperor was able to sort of you know fight through to a chink in Horus's armor, or he was so enraged by seeing Sanguinius destroyed, he pretty much just blasted Horus with power and wiped him out. Yeah. So <laughs> depends which version you believe with the ever changing canon. That's it. Um, so Sanguinius's death here it says it did send out like a psychic bombardment on, onto all of his sons who, sh- who shared his DNA and that basically imprinted the black rage onto all blood angels now that may have been an imprint of the demon's curse so yep. yeah it's, it, it, you see both stories can potentially be true but <laughs> listen the only one which is true is the one that Dan Abnett puts in his last book that's right <laughs> Um, okay, so the Blood Angels being beset by both the Red Thirst and the Black Rage pretty much continued their assault doctrine, you know, even after the formation of the Codex Astartes. You know, they sort of had... They sort of followed it, kind of. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, throughout time, the majority of opponents that the, uh, the Blood Angels faced have been Orcs, you know, mainly during the assault on Baal, Baal and the uh, Second and Third Wars of Armageddon. Yeah, you know, where they, they, all those encounters, they were basically up against an orc war boss and his and his group. But they also saw a lot of action against demons and chaos during the Thirteenth Black Crusade. So certainly, that that's really their, their main doctrines are towards orc and orcs and demons. Yeah, close combat enemies. Exactly right. Yeah. Speaking of close combat enemies, um, recent canon is that Baal is now in the path of High Fleet Leviathan. Yes. And although there's lots of stories of Blade Angels being involved in space Hulk clearing missions, so they've got lots of exposure to to gene stealers in the past um, they sort of feel a bit outmatched against Tyranids and so they have called upon other uh, other chapters to come and aid defend the defence of their homeworld basically so I think that the Flesh Terror is the one that turned up um, yeah a couple of others yeah but yeah, certainly yeah. they've got some missions coming so that, that looks like where sort of Cannon's caught up to because we certainly saw recently some Blay Angels and some yeah, there, stuff going there, on there's a, there's a book about um, Flesh Terror's chapter master as well and his trial on um, Baal and all that sort of stuff too. So. so that's really the history. I mean, lots lots of fights in the middle, but they're they're the sort of salient points that define who the Blood Angels are today. Yeah. Uh, so Blood Angels coming to the Death Watch. Um, I mean, first off, they bring a very strong assault doctrine. That's yes. really what they're all about. You know, um, they have a strong knowledge of fighting orcs. You know, which you know, a Xenos race. So definitely one in the in the sort of interest of the uh, Auto Xenos, uh, but also knowledge of demons as well and fighting them. And they actually make decent librarians too. Um, not only because librarians tend to be more sort of close combat combatants, but also because they have a sort of inherent mysticism about them. You know, this whole concept of the psychic phenomena of all the brothers being slain, you know, the imprinting that, that Sanguinius' death did. You know, there, there is a, a, a mystical attachment that the, the, the Blood Angels have. Yep. All right, so when it comes to actually building a Blood Angel in a system, um, they do get plus five weapon skill and plus five agility. So definitely fits that sort of assault, assault marine, yeah. Yeah. or once again, you know, librarian for the at least the the, the shooty or the hitty stabby side of the librarian. Yeah, the, the false weapon side of the exactly librarian. right. Yeah, um, they have the blood frenzy Solomon ability, which we'll talk about in a moment, and they have the red thirst demeanor. So the black rage doesn't really appear as a demeanor; it, it becomes their primarch's curse basically instead. Yeah. So their solo and squad ability. So solo mode, um, blood frenzy means that uh, once per combat, for a number of rounds equal to half your rank, so that's not a huge amount, 
you can re-roll all damage rolls. If a weapon actually has multiple dice, you have to roll all or nothing. So if it's a two dice, if you roll two dice and you get a ten and a one, you can't pick up the one re-roll. You've got to roll both dice if you want to re-roll. Uh, but you do inflict righteous fury on nines or tens when under the effects of the um, blood frenzy. That's not too bad. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, their squad attack pattern is Furious Sanguinius. Uh, so this allows the Battle Brother and all within support range to gain plus 10 weapon skill, strength, and toughness. Remembering that also the additional strength will affect their weapon damage as well. So um, Their squad defense pattern is Feel No Pain. So you halve all damage taken after you've reduced armor and toughness. Uh, and However, you can't use defensive reactions, no dodging or no parrying. Um, or any, you can't take any action which doesn't have the attack subtype. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> feels more like an attack pattern than a defense pattern, but I mean, yeah. you take, take less damage. <laughs> um, their progression chart is actually quite extensive because unlike most other progression charts, they don't have a lot of skills. They have acrobatics to plus 20, that's their one skill. Then it's all talents. Assassin Strike, Battle Rage, Berserk Charge, Flesh Render, Furious Assault, Frenzy, Hatred Orcs, Mental Rage, Slayer of Demons, and then Talented Trade Artisan and Talented Pilot Personal. Yeah. So, the Trade Artisans, I'll come back to that a little bit later on as well. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Well, Talented Pilot Personal is jetpacks. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So yeah. it fits in with the, once again... Assault Marine. Assault Marine, that's it. Which is why I always think it's funny that the pictures in the book have a Dark Angel Assault Marine and a Blood Angels Devastator. Yeah. The, the complete uh, reverse. A Blood Angels Devastator, especially given the way that you play out their chapter, their um, Primarch's Curse in this game, would be a very interesting choice. But we'll come back to that. Okay. So, your yeah, chapter trappings for Blood Angels, they get the choice of either the Blood Drop Pendant, which means that when you spend a Fate Point to gain plus 10 on a skill roll, you're actually gain plus 13. Um, or you take a Golden Icon, which has three, three different uh, versions. One gives you plus three in all command tests. One gives you plus one damage when charging. Um, and one allows you to reduce all corruption gains by one. That's not too bad. Yeah. What would you take out of those four options? Uh, it'd probably be either reduce corruption by one or plus one damage on charging. Okay. Depends yeah. if I was an assault marine or not. <laughs> You're playing a blind angel? Come on. <laughs> all right. Their psychic powers are really nice, I yeah. think. Okay. So you've got blood boil. So a single enemy takes 1d10 plus 2 times your psi rating damage, ignoring armor and toughness. If that slays them, they then explode, doing 2d10 damage to all enemies within 5 meters. Or everyone within 5 meters. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, okay, then you've got Blood Lance, which is all targets, friend or foe, in a straight line that is 10 times your psi rating long, take a 1d10 times psi rating hit, ignoring toughness. But not, that's but, a lot but, of damage. But, but not armor or, um, or cover. But still, that's... <laughs> that's a good Tyranid killer. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, okay, Fear the Darkness uh, means that a number of foes equal to your Psy rating treat all enemies on the battlefield as having a Fear rating of 1, or 1 high if they already have Fear rating. Okay, yeah. Yep. Uh, Might of Heroes, you all, uh, the Librarian can use it to gain plus 5 times their Psy rating in Strength. Yeah. Um, Shackle Soul, you can use it on an opponent, and each round you can prevent them from either making a melee attack or making a ranged attack, or using a psychic power. They, they test resist every round. Once they resist, the power stops. But each round, if they're still if they're still effective, you can prevent one of those things from taking place. Okay, yeah. So a good way to shackle down an, an enemy psyker, provided they have a willpower that's going to make it easier for them to break out. Now, it's a better way of shackling down mutant monstrosities carrying heavy weapons, or... Yeah, that's or true, yeah. Things which are big and dumb and not very brave, but are hard-hitting. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and then Wings of Sanguinius allows the librarian to gain the flyer trait with a movement speed equal to their psi rating. So not overly fast, but still up in the air. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's good for a librarian who doesn't have a jump pack. No, that's right. So I think overall a good set of powers. Yeah, yeah. Good yeah. set of powers, definitely. Yeah. I mean, they from canon, they do have one of the most powerful psychers in the Imperium on their side, with Mephiston, their chief librarian. Yes. Who's excessively overpowered if you have to fight against him. <laughs> have you, have you, are you saying you have a fought him against him? In, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In tournament play? In tournament play, he took out an entire squad of Gene Steelers. Oh, nice. Okay. On his own. Yeah. <laughs> he was just bad rolling on my part and good rolling on his, That's but it, yeah, it's Brian, still a bit... I seem to recall having a very similar circumstance playing against you with against with bad rolls on the teams because when I took them all out with a... Um, uh, one of those faith machines. The, uh, oh, the pen- Penitent pen- 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 Engine. Yeah, yeah. had a really good roll of Penitent Engine. That's it. Yeah, yeah that was that. But then, and then it got into a fight with someone that couldn't possibly injure. Yeah. So. <laughs> Carnifex, which chomped it. That's it. Okay, so the Black Rage, Primarch's Curse. So at level one, you must make a, a willpower plus zero test uh, to avoid slaying at least one foe if combat terminates without the total death of the enemy. So you know, if they surrender you know, and you fail the willpower test, you have to slay at least one more person. If there's only one person left, too bad for that person. Yeah. You know, but if, if you know, a whole squad surrenders, you know... Only carrying... one of them has to die. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, okay, level two. This is where it gets pretty bad for your um, your devastated characters. Unless there is no way to close with the enemy, the character must favour melee over ranged. Going so far as to drop ranged weapon and draw chainsaws, you know. Um, there's no roll. That's it's just it's a narrative action. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, shackle him to the front of the rhino. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, level three. Is at the end of every combat, you must test willpower minus twenty, or begin drinking the enemy's blood. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> I, I actually think probably the harshest one of those is, is, this, is the level two one because yeah. there's no resistance for it. Or yeah, so. I, I guess it depends what, well, what me, you know, what specialization. Yeah. I mean, compare, I'm just comparing, comparing these Ooh. with the last one we did. I think it was Imperial Fist we did last. Yeah, you know, where it's like level one, you're a bit of a jerk. Yeah, you know, like like they're. <laughs> yeah, they, they are. They're they're pretty harsh. Yeah. They're pretty harsh. Yeah. That level two one is that. That's rough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alternate specialities for the uh, Blood Angels. We've got two that are specific to Blood Angels. One is the Furioso Dreadnought. We've already spoken at length about the Dreadnought. Dreadnought. In, well, in- now you can be a Dreadnought <laughs> with two power fists. Yes. <laughs> Double uh, squishy. Yeah. And the alternate is the Sanguinary Priest, which oh, we spoke yeah. about in our first Death Watch yeah. episode. You know, a very nice take on the Apothecary. You know, really the Sanguinary Priest, it's their role to help their brothers manage the um, the Black Rage. Yeah. Uh, apothecaries play a special role as well because they have special blood rights when you first become a That's Blood it, yeah. Angel. It's a big part of their background. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Uh, when it comes to successor chapters, there are a, a whole load of Blood Angel successor chapters. Yeah. So just talk about, talk about the ones actually mentioned in the role-playing books. You've got the Angels in Carmine, uh, the Angels Sanguine, the Angels of Vermilion, and then the Flesh Terrors actually appear as a full Codex chapter listing as well. They've got their yeah. own sort of their yeah. own stats. Too. Oh yeah, definitely. Flesh Terrors are awesome. Yeah. No, so there's no Blood Drinkers there, but no. yeah, uh, they're pretty much the same as Flesh Terrors. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, but there are there are a substantial amount of Blood Angel successors in the in canon oh, as well. Definitely, yeah. yeah. All of which, you know, take their Primarch's curses. Yeah, all well, of which suffer the Black Rage. That's it, yeah. <laughs> and generally have less effective means of treating it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, some of them, like, some, some of them basically are pretty much regarded as psychopaths, you know. Yeah. Flesh uh, terrors. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so just some tips on playing a Blood Angel. Um, remember that layer of mysticism. It's, I think it's probably the one thing that's often forgot about the Blood Angels is that they do have this sort of background connection to the warp um, through their Primarch and their history as such. They, they do have... They, they place a lot of reverence in, you say, the blood rituals. Um, you know, the history of their chapter. Definitely, all that sort of stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they also strive for perfection in both martial and non-martial pursuits. Yeah, yeah. they were considered some of the best artisans. And all yeah, and that, that's where that trade, um, uh, talented trade artisan yeah. comes from. You know, a lot of them are well, great artists, which I always find funny that they go, "Oh, this chapter was considered some of the best artisans <laughs> and psychopaths." Well, no, no, it's just that they say that about almost all the chapters, yeah, don't okay. they? Yeah. You know, the the, the um, Come on, you know, I mean, the uh, white scars carved bone. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, iron hands. Yeah. Some of the best artisans in making machinery. Yeah. Um, uh, who else? Uh, oh, Emperor's Children. Yeah. Some of the best artisans. Yeah. Um, um, the the um, uh, Imperial Fists have the Osophic relics. Yeah. You know, so. Imperial Fists. Some of the best artisans in making things like storm shields. Um, Raven Guard. Some of the best artisans in making stealthy armor and things. And their, their stuff is fantastic to look at. Oh, who else have we got? Ooh, all right, just can, about all of hop them. Off your, hop off your high horse now. It's well, okay. You made a point. It, it, it's kind of difficult to say some of the best artisans when they're, you know, every other chapter is some of the best artisans. They should have just had one. They should have said, these guys, some of the best artisans. Everyone else, not as good. World Eaters, terrible artisans. I'd say so, probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Angron wasn't known for his his poetry. No, but he was well known for his crochet. <laughs> um, all right, and I guess last thing I want to say is remember that Blood, Angel, Blood Angels, the fall to the Black Rage is an inevitability. It's, it, you know, it's something that every Blood Angel knows that they will, they will not resist forever. Yeah. You know, there, are, there are various things they can do to, to help prevent it and such, but one day they will find themselves either lost in the rage in combat or consigned to the Death Company. Yep. So, you know, keep that in mind. that They are, you know, a grimdark, tragic warrior for yep. that respect. But the other thing to remember is that they've kept this secret for millennia from the Inquisition. The Inquisition has suspicions, but no concrete evidence of anything wrong with the Blood Angels or any of their successor it, chapters. Yeah. So... Sort of keep quiet about it. Don't go on bragging about the yeah, Black Rage. Which is Rage. why I've got a, a, an audio novel where you know a, a Inquisitor threatens to expose a group of flesh terrors for their for their Black Rage, and so they you know as, as she is fleeing the system in her ship, they set the Death Company upon the ship. Yeah, <laughs> kill everyone. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. So you know, nice, oh. nice honourable warriors in that respect. Well, they're flesh terrors. <laughs> okay, then let's move on. Okay. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. So today's plot hook, I guess, is partly derived from the Black Rage we spoke about with the Blood Angels, but it really could be any Primarch's Curse, because remember that the Primarch's Curse levels go up as you go through the Insanity track, and when you hit 100 Insanity, the character is still removed from play. So the, despite the sort of level 1 through 3 effects at, at that level, the Primarch's Curse is so bad, the character can no longer be considered a player character. And that's, yeah. that's where I sort of got this plot hook from. So I said... Another battle brother, known to the kill team within the Death Watch, has fallen to the worst effects of his Primarch's curse. He now poses a threat to himself, the Death Watch, and his chapter. The kill team has an opportunity to capture or eliminate the battle brother, allowing the curse to be hidden from the Inquisition. Will the ties of honour to the chapter, honour to chapter, and brother Marines be stronger than duty and loyalty to the Holy Orders? So I guess this is really about creating a question of conscience for the for the for the characters really you know it's that that 
I think that most Marines would feel stronger ties to their chapter and other Marines than they would to, to necessarily the Death Watch. But there are others who see the Death Watch as a fantastic or a, a, a major honour. Yeah. And uh, would feel duty bound. I mean, every chapter has a Primarch's curse. Not all Primarch's curses are really known. Like, you know, the, the Black Rage is not well known outside the Blood Angels or their successor chapters as well. And I'm sure that if it was just a question of Blood Angels, they would do whatever they could to hide that. But you're talking about other Marines from other chapters. Yeah. It, it almost reminds me of um, the RPG Paranoia, where it's like, yeah, be, being, being a mutant is a crime. Everybody is a mutant. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I mean, every chapter has a curse. And that curse, at some point or another, threatens to make the character a threat to everybody around them. And so, what would your group do? And, and this could play just as easy into one of the characters in your own group, does it? One of the characters hits 100, they're removed from play. They're not removed from the game. Yeah, they're, in, they're maybe an NPC now, but how's the group going to handle them now this has happened? Yeah, I think it works particularly well if there's a strong tie between the characters and this NPC. Yeah. So they've fought alongside him or they've had to deal with him before several times. And especially drives home the fact that they're all facing the same fate eventually. If you make it that this character always seemed the, sort of the paragon of that chapter, like yeah. the archetypal Blood Angel, the archetypal you know, Dark Angel, whatever, and they did it so well and they were so in control. Obviously it was the, the minor stages of the the Primarch's curse before then which made them the paragon of the chapter yeah and now it's gone even further even too far and it just sort of gives them an, an opportunity to see what fate is going to befall them if they continue to be uh, a bit lackadaisy or that's true yeah, their, yeah. Uh, I mean the people they, they, they all need to know that this is you know sanity goes up doesn't really go down in the system so there is a yeah. It's not a resource you gamble with as no, such, and no. they need to see what the effects of it are. And as you say, you know, the, the the fall becomes even greater if you have made this NPC a big part of the character's story going you know, up to this point as such. So yeah. you know, I always make sure that before I kill an NPC, I make it so the group really, really cares about them. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Now, as you see, I screw my silent group over soon. <laughs> I shouldn't say too much because someone listens to this show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's our plot hook. Let's move on. Oh, okay. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. So, on to Wargear, and in line with the whole Blangels thing, I thought we'd talk briefly about the assault pack, the jump pack, basically. The jump pack. Uh, okay, so first off, it does specify that using the jump pack requires knowledge of the pilot personal skill. Yeah. It doesn't really give any specifications with the gear about when you have to actually roll that skill. I would probably say that most of the basic operations of the jump pack can be used without a roll because it's charging one of those... into combat sort of thing that's it yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean so it's basically it's standard abilities are fall from have a guided fall from any height you know basically you know, slow, slow your descent and land safely from any height that I guess under stress might require a roll because you want you need to make sure you sort of fire at the right time you know, you know okay. pull your shoot too late yeah yeah definitely I mean if you're knocked unconscious and you're tumbling to your death and then you wake up a round before you land <laughs> and you have to make a one round check to not splat then yes yeah uh, you may also move up to double your regular movement speed counting as a regular move action to any anywhere within your movement range regardless of obstacles yeah. Um, so charging into combat. That's it. Yeah. Provided you end your turn on the ground, basically. Yeah, I'd say that shouldn't really need a roll either. Yep. And then, if you need to, you can actually um, effectively put it into full power mode and gain the flyer twelve 
uh, quality for I believe it's up to uh, where is it um, for up to one minute. Then it requires a minute to cool off. Okay, yeah. So I'd say any sort of major aerial acrobatics used in that minute, you're probably going to need to make rolls. Yes. So in- engaging in aerial combat with a group of gargoyles, yeah, I'd say make rolls. Yeah. I almost think, you know, when I see these days, you've seen those things where people get like these backpacks that shoot water jets out, and they, and they sort of, they, they use it to hover above the water. Have you seen those at all? No. Okay, there's this new thing you can do in like resorts and such, where they we wear this backpack that fires these two jets of water out, enough to sort of lift you, say, four or five metres above the water surface. It sounds but, safe. But you've got to stay, you know, because obviously you've got to stay upright. Um, otherwise, because if you go sideways, it'll just push you back into the water and such. And if you go underwater, it might push you down too. So they usually have this sort of... <laughs> Sorry, I've just got this image of someone trying to swim to the surface, getting pushed further down by the backpack. <laughs> so usually the people have this, they stand on the sort of frame which keeps them upright as well, you know. But when I see that, I sort of think that's probably about how gamely I think a jump pack would be. You know, it's not designed for continuous flight. It's designed for sort of jumps as such. Well, when you consider that a Space Marine in full power armor probably weighs 600 kilos minimum. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's not the sort of thing that's going to be very aerodynamic or uh, stable. Yeah, you're not the rocket man. No, no. no. (laughs) Definitely not. Yeah, you're the Incredible Hulk, basically, you know. (laughs) It's, you know, leap, leap distances and such, but not, you know, not sustained flight as such well you can do like it says you can do sustained flight for a minute but I think you'd have to be making some difficult rolls yeah and, and look flyer 12 is quite fast oh you, yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. yeah. You are, you're booking it across the sky there. you're not, not, a, yeah. you're not a vehicle as such and that's what's interesting is that they, they chose to make the jump pack a piece of gear rather than a vehicle it has no traits of a vehicle as such yeah. you know so there's no rules for I want to shoot to disable their jump pack as such you know it hasn't got it hasn't got its own health or harness as such you know it's not really arbitrary up to the GM as to whether or not a jump pack is disabled yeah yeah so that's something to look at especially if you're a salt marine you know you probably want a jump pack so uh, there you go let's move on or blood angels devastator yes with a jump pack my lord the information you requested is now available for your review so on to our review and this is another death watch pre-published module so as always just a quick spoiler alert you know if you're going to play this module you might want to fast forward a bit um, but uh, we'll be talking about it anyway. We, I won't give away some of the key spoilers, but I'll give you a bit of a run-through of the adventure. Uh, it's called The Rising Tempest. Um, yep. It does stand alone. You know, it's not designed to be part of a, a series of books as such. Um, but I will say, so we haven't played this, but I have read it, and I think this looks like a really fun game to run. It's a series of three separate games You know, uh, that have an overarching plot as well. Um, but yeah, I think it looks like a lot of fun for various reasons. A few little things here and there that you know I'll mention, but uh, let's talk about it first off. So chapter one is called Depths of Treachery. And in this adventure, the kill team are basically sent to an Imperial world um, where there is a basically a, 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 an Imperial Guard military force set up in the Jericho Reach to assist with the expansion. And the Death Watch have come to the concern that maybe there is a Tau infiltration going on. And potentially there may be people within the city who are, um, I guess, well disposed towards the town. Sympathise. Sympathise, that's right. Potentially even within the Astra Militarum. Oh. That's it. So... Purge the lot of them. <laughs> well, yes. that, that, that would be one game. It might be a shorter game. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very, I would call this a very political game as such. Okay. Um, yeah, because at the end of the day, it's not just a town hunt. 
you know, they arrive on what seems to be a relatively well-functioning normal normal world. Um, there are a, it's a huge cast of Imperial NPCs. You know, lots of members of the Astro Militarum, you know, the government, the local forces and such. You know, there, there are a lot of people to deal with, basically. And yeah, through the course of the adventure, you know, there is clearly dissent within the city. And I guess neither side is truly perfect, you know. Um, if, if the game does eventually lead to an uprising of the people within the city uh, while, the, while the kill team are investigating stuff underneath the city. And basically, the, the, the team can choose to support either side or neither side. You know that they or you know or actively oppose both sides. You know they, they can make their own judgments based upon what they've learned so far, as to whether they think there's justification in in going with either side. You know there there are drawbacks to to taking on both sides. You know so, for example, while they maintain a good relationship with the head of the imperial forces, they get access to, um, so they basically like a like a spy CCTV network sort of thing. Um, no, they piss him off though, then they're not going to get access to that anymore. You know so. Then, you know, there, there are repercussions for whatever decision they choose to go with as such. And so, um, but yeah, they certainly they do find out that there are um, Tau on the planet and that some of the Imperial forces are loyal to them. But what they also discover is that the Tau have discovered some sort of warp prison buried underneath the city, um, down beneath the mines as such. And the Tau are hoping to sort of access this prison because there is a, a Xenos race, like a new Xenos race, imprisoned within... The, this warp prison and the tower are seeking to free them for the greater good you know so uh, the kill team basically it, it all comes to a head with the kill team uh, taking action to stop the tower from, from from opening the prison and letting this Xenos race out basically yeah um, so yeah, what start, it starts off as a, as a very well designed political game with lots of different people to deal with as such and then it moves slowly into a more sort of exploration combative game with a with a big sort of you know, with with a betrayal and a big payoff at the end with the with a big battle as such. So yeah. overall, I think out of the three adventures in this book, this one's probably one of the best written. You know, there are, there are things I like about the other two, which I'll talk about as well. But I think this is probably the, the best written one, and I think it would be quite an enjoyable game, even on its own. Yeah, you know, you don't need to extend beyond this to have a have a fun game. But it does lead on to chapter two, which is assault on Javar Nil. Now. The first thing I like about this module is the setting. It's it's a really nice setting. It's basically um, the world it's set on was once like you know a, an imperial sort of you know the center of the ecclesiarchy for the imperium within the Jericho Reach before it was all lost. Yeah, and uh, you know there's hints that basically when it was lost, the whole planet descended into you know corruption and chaos, that sort of stuff. You know, so. Um, the Imperium has now decided they are going to rebuild this ecclesiarchal world, but they have taken great efforts to try and sweep away all the hints of corruption from the last time it was occupied as such. So they sort of built the cities over the old ones, you know, like, like elevated above the old city as such, and like the ruins of the old cities lay beneath, and all the cities are joined by massive road bridges so you don't have to set foot on the corrupted soil beneath. Yeah, you know, it's this great sort of you know ecclesiarchal setting, and of course it plays home to a rather difficult group of sisters of Armada Lady. Um, so you know, the, the kills have to deal with with battle sisters basically, who you know they're on the same side. They're both representing the Inquisition, um, but 
They're very different belief very structures. Very different belief structures, that's it, yeah. I mean, all you need to do is look in... Um, I think I think it's the last published, like not the, the web version, but the last book published, Sisters of Battle book, where you've got this sort of thing in the book, back of the book where it says, here are the reasons Sisters of Battle would fight all the various other races in the war game. And, and it's got, it's like, got an explanation for every single group. Yeah, that's right. Like yeah. why they'd fight Space Marines, why they'd fight Imperial Guard, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so there, and there are certainly reasons, multiple reasons in many cases, you know. So yeah. they they are antagonists in that they're not, we're not talking like a, you know, a shooting match between the, you know, um, uh, the kill team and the Sister Battle, but they, they're, they will create difficulties for the kill team's investigation, basically. Yeah. Um, now, what the kill team are looking at hunting down is... Uh, uh, Mortal, but they also encountered Tyranids in the second adventure. Now, the Tyranids are an odd choice because there's not a lot of reference given to why they're there. It's just like, okay, so there's Tyranids here now. And, yeah. Are we talking gene stealers or are we talking carnifexes no, no, and hive types? No, no, we, 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 we are talking like actual Tyranid forces rather than just gene stealers and such. And um, you see, I could understand it if it was just gaunts on their own because they can just, you know, they can just breed on their own without the, the hive mind to control them. Or if it's just gene stealers, they can, obviously, as well. But yeah. anything else, if there's not really a invasion coming, that seems a bit odd. Yeah. There is also a hint that there may be a Demon Prince present. And the Demon Prince is an optional encounter. So it's sort of like, you know, if they want to, they can go and take on this Demon Prince. I, I really can't see a circumstance where the kill team is going to go, hmm, you know we could finish our mission without taking on the Demon Prince? Let's live and let live and move on, you know. He, I'm sure he won't be a problem so much later on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I think the moment the group knows about it, they're going to want to take it on. And it's... A tough, a tough thing. Even a kill team that's going to struggle against a, oh, a powerful demon prince. Or definitely, something. yeah. Yeah, it, it was just odd to see. So we've got, we've got here, here investigating Tau. Oh, look, there are Tyranids and the demon prince. You know, so I mean, it's it all relates. So it sounds to, like the setting's really good and the core architecture's good of the game, but you may want to play around with the adversaries a little bit. Yeah, I mean, everything's got its place. It, 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 it's just, it, it's a bit of a grab bag of adversaries and such. That's all. Yeah. Okay, it leads into chapter three, which is Exterminatus. So, this is based, it starts off with the group being recalled back to um, Watch Fortress Enoch to basically do their um, their report, their um, thing of the next mission. They go, they go into a, basically a training sort of scene where they, you know it's like okay, you know, danger room sort of setting, but they then discover that there is something going on on the Watch Fortress. So the forces, Tau infiltrators, have managed to attack. The, the Watch Fortress itself. Oh, so okay. so they, they repel that. Um, and then the group is basically told, okay, well, the Omega Vault's opened. Um, we're going to get ready to basically prepare to... You know, we've got all this information we've gained for the last two adventures. We know where we need to go next. We're going to prepare for that. You need to go and find out what's important in the Omega Vault, that it's opened. And then we'll come back and, and we'll sort of plan our next step. And the group goes into the Omega Vault and they find an ironclad dreadnought. Who who you know joins their squad? Um, As you do. Yes. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, yeah, it's got role playing tips for the dreadnought. You know, some dreadnoughts do go into very long periods of, of yeah. shutdown, effectively. You know, so it's not it yeah. would it's not impossible that there'd be a dreadnought there. It's just a, a interesting set piece to bring in because the risk I always find with something like that is that it overshadows the rest of the characters. Yeah. 
Yeah, but yeah, they they bought the strange out of their mega vault. Um, they then basically go to a world where I'm not going to go over the whole in, in plot basically, but effectively you've got the Tau have managed to free some of this Xenos race, and they're they're a clear and present threat. And the whole time this has been manipulated by the forces of chaos by chaos space marines. Um, so I take it this this force of Xenos which were trapped in the prison are not friendly. They're not friendly, no, to anyone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they, they, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they need to be killed. That's what's important. It's, it's not this mission is not called Exterminators for no reason. You know? Okay. Um, what I did particularly like here is the fact that um, one of the set pieces in this game is the fact that um, you've got uh, oh yeah, Iron Warriors. Which are the Chaos Legion that are all the uh, tech? Um, Iron Warriors. Yeah, Iron Warriors. Sorry. What, what do you mean? Carry on. Continue. Okay, I'm worried. Sorry. Yeah. So I'm worried. Yeah, that's, they're, they're the ones that had the warp smiths, aren't they? Yes. Okay, cool. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> got confused. That's right. I'm thinking, which, what's, the, what's the tech one that's still loyal then? The, um... the silver skulls? The no. iron hands? Iron hands. Iron hands. Okay. Yeah, uh, iron I'm, hands are loyal. Yeah, iron, iron warriors, warriors are okay. not. That's not confusing at all. Okay. But the iron warriors. Uh, the, the iron warriors icon is <laughs> almost identical to the silver skull icon. Yes. So the Iron Warriors, uh, there's basically a, a warpsmith is behind what is going on. And one of the set pieces is this sort of technological maze that's being created out of the warp by the warpsmith that the group has to make their way through with numerous encounters in it. And I, I think it's a very cool set piece. You know, it remind, it, it's sort of reminiscent of the end of the Harry Potter, the Goblet of Fire as such, which you probably haven't, you've seen the movie, I think. Anyway, no, I think I've seen it. Yeah, yeah so the, the, the maze itself is not just a maze. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, a death trap as such. So yeah. very cool set piece. Um, you know, certainly chapter three is a whole bunch of combats strung together by what I think is, is a good wrap up plot as such it does it wraps up the story of the three chapters quite nicely but it is certainly the most combat heavy you know there, there's less opportunity I mean most of the NPC encounters are box text okay you know um, there's less opportunity for the player characters to really get their politico on which you know having done two games where they've had to schmooze imperial forces then schmooze battle sisters they probably just want to shoot and kill stuff. Yeah, fair enough. And there's plenty of stuff to shoot and kill, including a whole new Xenos race oh. that are sort of like evil crab things. Evil crab men. Yeah, well, not crab men. They're, they they oh, they like lobster like, men, like, like, like crab like crab crabs. They're not they're not they're not humanoids. Oh. Yeah. Damn it! I'll show you a picture, which will be no good for other listeners, but I'll, I'll show it to you in the break. Okay. Yeah. Um. So over uh, there is actually an appendix for all the NPC stats are because there are a lot of NPCs, especially in the first two chapters. Yeah. Um. I think that this would present a decent threat level for any group. Uh, it really comes down to when you do the sort of end encounters for each module, how many forces you array against the PCs at once. So you can sort of have them, you know, fight one at a time for a lower level group or fight them all at once for a higher level group as such. Um, I think it's quite easy scales for it, depending on how powerful your group is, basically. And at the end of the day, in the third chapter, there's a dreadnought there if you need... If they yeah. need extra firepower. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. An ironclad dreadnought. So overall, I really like Rising Tempest. You know, um, it's certainly one I would definitely consider running in a Death Watch game in the future. I would give it probably a solid eight. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. So, so you feel that the, the link between the three separate adventures is stronger than in, say, um, End of the Harlock Trilogy? Yeah, yeah, or uh, end, end of the apostasy. Oh, game, sorry, end of the apostasy. Yeah, game, yeah. That, that was definitely. Yeah, I think it was on the show before. Apostasy game. It felt like here's a whole bunch of models we've written. Let's string them together with a tenuous plot. Yeah. You know, this has been. You know, I think they've had the overarching plot first, 
and then they design the set pieces around that. Okay, yeah, that sounds better. So I think, I think this is a very well done book, and I would certainly recommend it for any Death Watch group. Okay, and I haven't blown away too many too many big reveals anyway. So okay, good, okay, good. let's move on. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, so for our final discussion, um, what's the problem to do this is when I talk to people about Death Watch, I often hear them saying Death Watch is a game where you get to play Space Marines, and at its core, that's true. Yeah, it's a game we play Space Marines, but what they sort of forget about Death Watch is that the organization itself, Death Watch, is a part of the Inquisition. It's a part of the Auto Xenos. It's the, it's the auto militant of the Auto Xenos, and so. Therefore, it's not just Space Marines. It's Space Marines serving the Inquisition. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that a lot of people miss out on when they do Death Watch is bringing the Inquisition into their game. Now, first and foremost, it, the players will experience that through the missions they do. You know, the, the, the GM will come up with missions and... Uh, okay, let's go back a step uh, slightly. Uh, we've spoken in the past about... Um, Two terms that I use, and this sort of comes from MMO gaming, is uh, sandbox versus theme park. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I wanna, I'll come back to those in greater detail when we do our pacing discussion a couple of episodes time. But I tend to look at Death Watch and Only War as being pretty much restricted to theme park. Yeah. Yeah. Effectively, you've got someone telling you what to do. Yeah. The, the player characters have a have a limited degree of autonomy in between missions, or, or, or decide what missions they go on. You know, it's not just like, you are space marines in space with a ship, go forth and do what you want to do. You know, that, 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 that's the theme park style, that, um, sorry, the sandbox style, which fits more with, uh, with Road, Road Trader, Trader, for Death example. Probably, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah, the Only War, Death Watch are pretty much locked down to go here, do this, go here, do this, etc. You know, the player carries can influence what options they've got, but that's, that's what it is. So, first and foremost, that's what we all see in the position, is the missions that they do. And I think that as a GM, you really need to try and convey to the players uh, what the benefit of this mission is to the Inquisition. You know, so it's discovering more knowledge about X, or it's wiping out Y threat, or um, it's recovering some you know, artifacts or such. All these things have some import to the Inquisition, and understanding what the overall outcome of that is will help the player characters get more into the plot too. Yeah. That being said, you also remember that the Imperial Inquisition is a very secretive organization. So there's no harm in sending the player character on a mission with a very unclear sort of uh, reason for their, for their development such and then hinting that there is something nefarious going on. Or, you know, we've, already, we've spoken in the past in our, black, in our Dark Heresy games about you know, the radical Inquisitor who is prepared to risk too much as such. Uh, that also fits into the, the Death Watch campaign too. It's harder for such a radical, radical inquisitor to get away with it in the Death Watch as well, because you know. Generally whereas, speaking, the Space Marines don't become radical as well. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the acolytes in you know in, in uh, Dark Heresy will rarely you know count in mind their um, their inquisitor, but Space Marines, will, especially Black Templars, <laughs> if they feel that you know something is is not kosher, they'll certainly step up and and let somebody <laughs> let their inquisitor know. Uh, so yeah, certainly the character of the Inquisitor or the Inquisitors in the game, I think is quite important to representing the Inquisition as an organization within the Death Watch or the Death Watch as part of the Inquisitor organization. Yeah. So you can either have it so that the group generally has one Inquisitor they always deal with, perhaps even going on missions with. You know, we've spoken in the past about allowing 
a player to make a you know inquisitor level character from Dark Heresy and join the game. Now, the systems aren't really completely compatible, but it's still workable. It's um, close. Yeah, that's it. Or once again, you make an NPC, and you know the the Space Marines regularly get to work alongside the Inquisitor. Just keep in mind that although the Inquisitor may choose to command the Space Marines, that they have more, I guess, uh, more ability to say no to, to refuse orders. You know, like at the end of the day, Inquisitors can request aid from Space Marines. Space Marines can choose to say no. It's a bit different in the Death Watch, where they're actually assigned to support the Death Watch, but still, the Space Marines have it within their rights to not agree. You know, it's uh, once again, I'll go back to that audiobook I mentioned about you know, the Flesh Terrors working with an Inquisitor. There, you know, there was certainly lots of animosity between the between the Space Marines and the Inquisitor over. You know, it's, there's a lot of you know, this is not your jurisdiction sort of stuff. You know, so. yeah. <laughs> um, or you may choose to go the path where you've got lots of Inquisitors with different characteristics and ideals and their own agendas and that they give the group different missions sometimes they might try to enlist the group's aid against another member of the inquisition as such or against some other faction because remember that you know although the space marines are for the most part pure and, and locked down you know the, the inquisitors that join them will have their own you know someone might be a mouthy and some might be yeah they'll Thorians, have their own you know. agendas and and yeah yeah that's right so I think it's really a part of the game that you can't just skip over. You've got to sort of incorporate the the Inquisitor. I mean, if you were going to run a, a Death Watch campaign, for example, Mike, how would you sort of... What, what would be your preference for incorporating the Inquisition into the game? Um, a lot of the time, the players probably wouldn't deal with the Inquisitor so much. It would be a case that they'd go to their, their mission briefing, the Watch Commander would be there, the Inquisitor would be there explaining why they need to go do their thing. Every so often, they may have to go and escort the Inquisitor to go do something inquisitory you know sort of like a glorified babysitting mission almost <laughs> but which always goes poorly yeah. you know um, yeah I think that would probably be the best way and maybe have more than one inquisitor because it's you know the watch house the Amiga vault it's a major installation it's a major resource for a lot of Inquisitors. Yeah, it should, should be a big part of your campaign, Death yeah, Watch, definitely. definitely. Yeah. So you're not going to have just one Inquisitor in charge of the whole thing. Um, but it probably won't be many. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I could certainly see running a campaign. I'd probably do a... You know, have the first game sort of start off in media ray with the, um, the, you know, the Death Watch working with an Inquisitor in the field. And then, for whatever reason, you know, the Inquisitor... The Death Watch, the, the kill team work out basically that uh, the Inquisitor needs to be taken out at the end. You know, they've, they've got to step in and you know stop their Inquisitor right into the mission as such, and then that sort of sets the tone for the campaign at the start, where it's like, well, so you're the kill team that killed your Inquisitor. You know, well, you know, we're, we're in right to do so. Yeah, you're in right to do so, but still, it's a yeah. bold step. You know, it's <laughs> still not the best yeah, thing to do. Could make or break your career. <laughs> Other Inquisitors might have their certain opinions about how they're going to deal with you in the future as such, you know. Yeah, yeah. keep this up. And, keep this up, McGarnacle, and I'll bust you down the traffic car. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing, is, is that the Inquisition is, is, at the end of the day, an investigation organisation. Yeah. Now, yes, the Death Watch are the auto-militant, which means that they are the, the striking arm of that organisation, but... You know, you can't... I think a Death Watch campaign that was just combat after combat after combat would be very boring. Yeah. And so you need to give the player characters a chance to get their investigation on, even as if they are seven foot tall, you know, armoured killing machines as such. And, and that's a big part of it is, you know, look through Dark Heresy, look at the investigation rules um, 
or the inquiry rules as such, you know, incorporate those into your Death Watch campaign. There are lots of Imperial worlds within the Jericho Reach where they can interact with friendly NPCs or, you know, seemingly friendly NPCs. You know. Yeah. Just look at, you know, effectively, the first two chapters of uh, of Rising Tempest. It's all built around that sort of concept as well. So, yeah, it's really, it's a higher-powered version of Dark Heresy in some respects. Yeah, the player character is just much more capable than a regular acolyte is and with more control over their own actions as such. By much more, I take it you mean slightly capable. <laughs> they are actually Yeah, competent. that's right, yes. Skill, skills that they are trained to do, they will succeed more often than they will fail. Yes. <laughs> Unlike Dark Heresy characters, which still fail more often than they'll succeed on even the stuff that they are built around. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, don't just make this a game about Space Marines. Yeah, it's a game about Space Marines working within an Imperial organization which is set up to discover hunt down and eliminate Xenos threats um, and you know when they come across other threats as well you know Hereticus threats or Malleus threats I'm sure they will still step in they won't go oh greater demon not our jurisdiction we'll leave that for the local forces shall we let's move on <laughs> my ID card says death watch not not grey knight <laughs> <laughs> that's it above my pay scale mate above my pay scale that's it yeah <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not clear of that sort of combat <laughs> alright then let's move on yep all astropaths in the choir chamber message incoming right so on to our community section um, I actually did not get a chance yet to look at iTunes this, this fortnight so as I'll, far I'll look... as I'm aware there are no new reviews okay well I'll look again maybe we'll have some next week because we missed ones this week we'll see how we go yep um, but we have had a few other write-ins and comments. Yep. So I'll start off. We got an email from Max. Um, he had some questions about Black Crusade, which I know the answers to, but I, I think you'll be better off ask, answering because you've played these characters. Yep. So his first question was, um, when it comes to the advanced archetypes which start aligned to a god, yep. um, he asked, what happens if you, know, you, you start the game in the first game, somebody... Does you know use a warp power? You suddenly gain a whole bunch of corruption. Hit the ten point thing, and you haven't spent any XP because your, your initial things you get free don't start, don't count as alignment stuff. Do you just become unaligned? Okay. Um, generally speaking, the way it's not clear in the books. Yeah. It, it's really not clear in the books what happens. The way I'd say is, if it says you're start aligned, I would count that as a five as five shadow advances. Towards that god. Yeah, that's the way I've always taken it. Definitely, yeah, so. you know, so if you're playing a noise marine and with your first XP expenditure you go out and you buy a pair of corn advantages, yeah. you know, two strength increases, um, which would cost you a fortune to start with, but if somehow you did that in your very first adventure straight away, I would say you're no longer aligned to Slanesh, you're unaligned at that point. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to buy it back. But... If you got a bunch of corruption and you earned a cast reward straight away, I would say that that would be a Slanesh cast reward as your noise marine, as you are shadow aligned to Slanesh. Yeah. Um, I think that's up to the GM to decide whether those five points count towards the 20 required to get the mark for free, whether those five points count towards the requirements to become demon princes, all this sort of stuff. That's up to the GM. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, I found with making a character, when I first played around with Black Crusade, my initial observation was the fact, and I've probably mentioned this on the show, I've mentioned things multiple times on the show, I've been told, but that... Uh, Not just on the show, James. <laughs> that if you were to build a character, so say, say I'm trying to build a Slanesh line character, and I go for the um, 
uh, the uh, apostate, okay, yep. which is a socially focused character. A lot of the things I get for free are slanesh aligned, which makes it harder to keep. Slanesh yeah, because they're going to cost more. I don't. Really, I mean, I, I, when I made my when I made my Nurgle character, when, when there was an option of this or this, I specifically chose the free. Uh, I specifically chose the non Nurgle line thing for free. So I could buy the Nurgle line thing with XP and actually get the points towards Nurgle alignment as well. Yes. Um, yeah, it's just one of those, those small things. But yeah, I would certainly take it as uh, for those advanced archetypes that are pre-aligned as having effectively alignment points already sort of hidden in their yeah. character creation. Yeah, I'd say if it says aligned to whatever god, I'd say it counts as five points aligned towards that god. Yeah. Um, Max's second question was. Uh, Okay, so you've got the advanced archetypes. They are considered to be a higher XP level than your starting character. So when we did our game, we've got two advanced archetypes and two standard archetypes. Yep. And we just basically applied the additional XP... To the non-advanced. To the non-advanced ones to get up to the same level. Um, that is intended to balance it. Um, but uh, Max's concern was that... So you've got, for example, a, a, a Death Guard, for example. Okay, so Death Guard is very clearly Nurgle-aligned. You know, they, they've... If they are actual Death Guard, they've been Nurgle line for a long, long time, you know. Yeah. Um, yet, a starting, you know, uh, Renegade or whatever could take a whole bunch of Nurgle advances and actually get to things like Mark of Nurgle and other sort of things before the Death Guard has an opportunity to do so. Yeah. Because it, despite the fact they're just a, a human who has happened to gain Nurgle's notice or something. They could spend all that XP on just buying Sound Constitution and nothing else. Yeah. And get there straight away. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's true. So, any thoughts on, on how you manage that one? Um, sucks to be the death guy. <laughs> there, there isn't, unfortunately. Unfortunately, the balancing mechanic for the advanced archetypes isn't quite balanced enough. Um, I'd say it's probably the biggest downfall of the Black Crusade system is the character creation bit. And I think the GM is going to have to step in early and make their decisions about whether... Someone can say, I'm Nurgle aligned, and then spend all that bonus XP, or if they have to buy that stuff, which means that if they're buying a whole bunch of Nurgle stuff, they're buying it all as unaligned until the end of character creation, at which point they become aligned. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this is also the inherent problem with stuff like Ancient Warrior. Yeah. So, you know, a character with Ancient Warrior has basically been around since the Horus Heresy, which is thousands of years, yet... They have the same starting XP as every other character, a character who may have been born 20 years ago, for example. Yeah. Um, you've got to keep in mind that just because someone has been around for a long time doesn't mean that A, they've been actively developing themselves, and B, they've been doing things which gains the notice of the, of the Chaos Gods. Or even that they've had all that time to do anything. Yeah. I could have been involved in the Horus Heresy, and to me... I've just evacuated from Terra yesterday yeah. and I've arrived in the Eye of Terra and oh, look, 10,000 years have passed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's warp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you can't really equate it. It's very difficult, but it does create a lot of lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, you've got to keep right. in mind that, that what you see as a, as a true balance for the characters really is more the infamy score. Yeah. Not their age, not their XP. The infamy score is how much notice they have actually achieved before the Chaos Gods. So, yes, a Death Guard might have been an ancient warrior that's been there since the Horus Heresy, but you're right, he might have been in stasis for a long time. He might have been lost to the warp for a long time. For whatever reason, he only has his starting infamy at the start of character, at the start of character creation. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm a thousand-sun sorcerer. I could say, the reason my infamy is so low is 
I arrived in the Screaming Vortex. I claimed some little asteroid planet with a village on it as my own personal fiefdom. And I've sat there. And I've done nothing. You know, you're not really going to get much info for me doing that. Experimenting on the odd villager isn't really going to get you noticed by the gods. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I... I know that you look at these sort of archetypes that are like sort of ancient archetypes from the setting and say they should be more powerful, but there can be reasons that they're not. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way that you sort of equate that balance. I mean, the balance is there for mechanical reasons to make the game fair, but there are narrative reasons that you can explain the balance. Yeah. That's it. Um, and Max's last thing in his email is basically a suggestion for a, a topic of discussion, which we will put off to a future episode. Okay. So we'll come, okay. Back, we'll come back to it then. Okay, um, next up. Last episode, we spoke about uh, online gaming tools, and that started off a Twitter conversation with a number of people that I got involved in, and it was raised to my attention that there is another online gaming tool known as Gamersplane, yep. which is gamersplane.com. So once again, it has all sorts of utilities for online gaming. Um, check it out as well. You know, the, the creator said that he's planning to add more Warhammer stuff to the game soon as well, to the, to the platform as well. So I'm sure checking out. Uh, our friend Pat linked an article to us on Facebook which I will include in the show notes but you can also find it through our Facebook page that basically discusses the narrative concept of quote unquote grim dark grim dark versus horror that's right yeah yes. and, and it's funny because he, he, the article includes the urban dictionary definition of grim dark which actually makes reference to one of 40,000 as well yeah. yeah, even though the, the concept is not limited to one of 40,000 yeah we actually had this conversation at our last Black Crusade game. Yeah. That Grim Dark is an actual genre. And the I think the dictionary definition is defined by ultra realism or excessive violence. And yeah. it's like, well, forty K really isn't ultra realistic at all. Yeah. Even slightly. So how can you have a definition which has two things so vastly different? <laughs> That's it, yeah. It's gritty, you know, it's dark, it's it, uh, I mean horror is built around the concept of invo- of evoking a certain emotional response. Yeah. You can be grimdark without needing to engage someone's emo- on an emotional level as such. You know, it's, it, it's more of a, a stylistic theme than it, than it is a, a, a theme of connection. But yeah, an article well worth reading anyway. And it's got a picture of uh, Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones eating a heart too. So, yeah. Know. Of course. Uh, Alright, and the last thing was um, Stefan via Facebook as well just referenced the fact that when we reviewed Frozen Reaches in our last episode for um, uh, Rogue Trader that he's actually used that game for Death Watch successfully as well. So he started running it with his Road Trader group, the group fell apart, he thought the game was so good, he thought when he started running Death Watch it should be easy to incorporate, and it was. You know, he yeah. said the most fun part was having the Space Marines attend the Imperial Gar. But <laughs> 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 once again, very NPC heavy plot. Yeah. Yep. So thanks to all those people for writing into us. Um, now if you do want to contact the show, there's many ways to do it. We've got our website, which is grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. Uh, we tweet through at grimdartpodcast. Our email is show at grimdartpodcast.com. There's our voicemail link on the right-hand side of our website and also the drive-thru RPG affiliate link. I checked today. Enemies Without is not yet up on drive-thru RPG. Yeah. But yeah, it should be soon. And when it is, make sure you follow our affiliate link support both the game and us. Okay, coming up in episode 54, it's a Black Crusade episode, and we are getting all things Slanesh in here. So we've got the social encounter system from Tome of Excess, the noise marine, should be a fun one to talk about, looking forward to chatting about marines with guitars, yep. even though that's been retconned, um, 
Listen, Agreed. Sorry? At the end of the day, yeah. sound blasters and all that stuff were musical instruments when they were first created. That's true. Yeah. So, guitars, steel cannon. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, we're going to talk about the nature of Slanesh and do a review of binding contracts as well. Yep. So, it should be a fun episode. Another, another one to make you feel squirmish like our last Dark Elder episode. So, yeah, yeah should be should be all sorts of wrong in our next episode. No, even that's, more so. That's right. Oh, maybe we should... Um, Maybe we, maybe we should take the from how did he feel off the next episode and, and mark it as uh, explicit on on um, yeah I, I, I think that I think the Slanesh <laughs> one should be yes but we'll also talk about how to make Slanesh not perverse and triple X rated that's true yeah okay okay so we'll see you next episode thanks for joining us tonight okay this podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Music Alley, music.mibio.com.